Thanks for listening to the gathering from Storyline Church. Have you ever been stunned by a gift? Something so generous, amazing, thoughtful, perfect? If so, you know it creates a space in us that gives us great joy, but also pause. What now? What next? The grace of God is like that. How do we respond to grace? That is the question we continued to explore last Sunday morning at Storylines Gathering. The band performed songs by Switchfoot, Bruce Cockburn, Waxahachie, and local natives. Let's have a listen.
question is this. What have I been doing? Everybody says to me, hey, you don't do the show anymore. What do you do? I'll tell you what I do. Nothing. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. That sounds pretty good. You're thinking, I might like to do nothing myself. Well, let me tell you, doing nothing is not as easy as it looks. You have to be careful. Because the idea of doing anything, which could easily lead to doing something, that would cut into your nothing, and that would force me to have to drop everything. Hey, good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. Can we hear it for the band again? Aren't they just so good? So, so good. We're going to do a couple more just great songs this morning. I'm so excited about it. So this month, um, in preparation for New Year, we actually, last week, we're, we started a series of a few Sundays that we're going to do together, uh, investigating a different kind of resolution. Not the kind where we make a commitment, to make something happen, but instead we engage in a sustained surrender to let something happen. So we are considering what it looks like to resolve to respond to grace, God's undeserved love, acceptance, affection, and forgiveness for everyone, everywhere, every day. Now, I've had some really good conversations about this in the last week, and one of them happened immediately after last Sunday's gathering in the lobby, and somebody asked me, so how do we know when to do something? Because the life of faith is about taking action and living out our faith too, and, you know, of course, they're right. That's true. So letting something happen can't mean do nothing which is not as easy as it looks. I think Seinfeld's right. So let's be clear. We do have to do something to respond to grace, for grace to thread itself into our lives. But our response, what we do, in no way earns God's love, acceptance, affection, or forgiveness. So it might be helpful to think about it like this. Imagine God's grace as a sunrise. Uh, There's nothing you can do to get the sun to rise because the sun's already going to rise. We cannot earn a sunrise, but to enjoy a sunrise, we have to do something. We have to get up early and we have to face east. Now, Religion teaches us that when we do certain things, we can then say, look at me, God. Like, look at at what I did. I got up early. I'm facing east now. And you have to make the sunrise. But grace says, the way of grace says, no, the sunrise is on everyone, everywhere, every day. Every sunrise is pure grace. But there are things that we must do to enjoy a sunrise, to soak it in and carry that radiance into our real everyday lives. Now, I want you to notice in this example that the religious and those following the way of grace are both doing something. 
but the religious think they're earning it. The religious think they're making something happen. The gracious are simply enjoying it. They're letting something happen. The religious, it's as as if the religious climb the mountain early in the morning, face east and say, look at me, God. While the gracious get up early, climb the mountain, face east and say, God, look at you. That's the difference. And I think it, it matters how we do what we do. I think both people in this example carry that attitude, whichever one they have, into the rest of their life. And that's, I think, what we often pick up on from people. So Storyline longs to be a community of grace, of faith, and the grace of God, not a look at me, but a look at God people. That's what we're trying to do together. So while keeping our response to grace framed as letting something happen, as a surrender to sustain. This morning and next week, we're going to kind of turn a corner toward what we can do to respond to God's grace, to enjoy it, to embody it, and to extend it into the world. Now, I'm gonna share several observations this morning. And some of us may see how one or two or all of them fit together and some of us may not. I'm not actually making the case that all the observations I'm gonna share this morning um, do necessarily fit together. But my hope is that at least one of them will be a thread that we can hang on to, that we might resonate with, and God can use to weave his grace into our lives. So I think what I appreciate the most about the way of grace is that it all at once acknowledges that life is very difficult and often tragic and yet holds out this hope that we can find meaning and purpose and truly flourish in the midst of that. Like when our life is lived as a response to the grace of God. There is a scene in the book, Beloved, by Toni Morrison, a very famous book, a famous writer. And in this scene in this book, a young child is out and about and playing with friends and something bad happens. And the child runs to the front porch complaining to their grandfather about this thing that has happened and making excuses for their less than stellar reaction to what has happened. Basically whining about their difficult life. And the grandfather patiently listens to the whole story, then looks up from his whittling and says, child, you have two legs, not four. I love that line. He's telling his grandchild, you're reacting like any animal would. But God gave you two legs, not four. You are a human being created in the image of God, capable of accepting all that comes your way and then responding with grace. Look, we all know that life presents us with situations where we have to do something, but the doing can't just be a reaction. It must be a response in search of the grace to be found in all the circumstances of life, which is what the promise of God is, that there's grace to be found in every situation and circumstance. In other words, I mean, think of it this way, letting something happen 
can go right along with being proactive and assertive and free. We are going to have to decide and do something to let something happen. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. So, for the record, that's the first Lord of the Rings scene I have shown, I think, this year, okay? <laughs> I have really held myself back. So, if you aren't familiar with the Lord of the Rings, and if you aren't, why? Okay, that's the first <laughs> question. Uh, Frodo is uh, one of the heroes of the story, and he has found himself in a very difficult and painful and complicated si situation, and it's kind of symbolized by this ring that he's holding, and he's tempted to give up, to react as if he has four legs instead of two. He even says, I, I wish this had never happened. I wish so much this had never come to me. I know that far too many of us know that feeling. And then Gandalf, who's like the ment his mentor in this just brilliant story, he, he hears Gandalf's voice in his head that reminding him, we don't get to choose the time and the circumstances of our life. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. In the midst of real life, like the actual good, the bad, and the ugly, actually what it looks like in our real everyday life to climb the mountain and face east, not to stand at the top and be celebrated. The, in that actual real way, in all the bumps and bruises and scars that come along with real life, the invitation of Jesus is to move beyond whining on the front porch or wishing at the seashore there and instead respond to the grace of God to decide and do do something, that, that can be the beginning of sustaining a surrender to the life of faith. It helps us to 
let the grace of God weave its way into us and through us. Now, exactly what that looks like for you to decide and to do, to enjoy God or to decide and do, that's different for different folks, okay? The the next three observations I'm gonna share this morning are examples that I think really work for me, okay? And so maybe one of them will be helpful for you. So this is the third observation about how maybe we can let something happen while taking action, okay? No one um, tries out for a team. Uh, I just, I'm the, I was a uh, promoted, I hate to brag, but last year I was the assistant to the assistant for the JV basketball team at Lakeshore. This year I am the one and only assistant for the JV basketball team at Lakeshore High School. So we just went through tryouts and it's always like, it's the worst thing for coaches. So you have to cut people. And this year, um, fortunately we had 10 people tried out and everyone made it. (laughs) So I know, we're so excited. Um, uh, We didn't tell the guys that literally anybody with a heartbeat would have made the team. (laughs) But so they all think, I made it. We're like, yeah, we have to have at least 10, sorry. But anyways. But no one tries out for a team to to get cut. No one tries out for a team and wants to sit the bench. No one wants to look back on their life and see a couple of trophies and some cash and a few faded pictures, but like nothing that really matters or made a difference. We all want our lives to count, to mean something. We all wanna leave a legacy. The older I get, the more I find myself thinking about that. One of my favorite quotes puts it like this. This is the true joy of life, being used for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature, rather than a feverish little cloud of ailments complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. (laughs) Right, I know, thank you. I I used that, that was a poster in my classroom, Um, and the kids would read it and try to ignore it, but... (laughs) To be engaged in a purpose bigger and beyond ourselves, this is part of what it looks like, I think, for me to respond to the grace of God. Psychologists call this an infinity project, something that lasts beyond us because we are made in the image of God. Human flourishing requires that we have this kind of bigger, better, and beyond mission in our life. Now, from what I can tell, and I'm watching closely, especially now, okay, this is the joy of grandparenting, as far as I can tell. And we have some all-star grandparents here. And I'm watching you closely because I'm hoping sooner than later, and that's all I'm going to say. Anyway, (laughs) I I remember when my parents first became grandparents, and I saw them with my kids, and I was like, I I like, look at Lisa one time, I go, who are these people? I have no idea who these people are. They look just like the people who raised me. Like our kids would go to my parents' house and come back telling us things like, we had ice cream for breakfast. Like what? What is going on? I started calling my parents' house the kingdom of yes. It's just like, my, my, we would, my kids would get back and I'd say no and they would look at me like it's a foreign word, like I was speaking Martian to them or something. But parents are in 100% like survival mode, right? Like just make it to bedtime. Like please God, make them go to sleep. Please, right? Grandparents, 
completely different story. Totally, they are on a mission. And for me, it's amazing to see. To me, it looks like grace come alive. It's so cool. How can we sustain a surrender to the life of faith and the grace of God? Well, for me, it has something to do with being part of a larger purpose and meaning, an infinity project. Do you have one? Does that resonate with you? Just a thought. Another observation. My father-in-law, Tom Doc Hudak, um, was a pilot. And this is a picture of me and Jimmy when, he, when Jimmy was little and um, him, Doc Hudak, flying his plane. He had a plane. And one of the things that he taught me about flying was something pilots call crabbing or crab walking. And it works like this. When a pilot wants to go from point A to point B, they have to take into account the crosswinds, okay? If you don't, if you simply, simply aim at B, okay, you'll be blown off course and you'll end up at point C. So to get to where you want, you actually have to aim at X. And over time, your course looks like this. That is called crabbing or crab walking. Crabbing is setting a course for some place north in this situation where the wind is coming out of the, the crosswinds are coming out, out of the north. Some place north of your actual destination in order to compensate for the crosswinds. Now, maybe that's part of what it looks like to respond to the grace of God. The German writer Goethe describes it this way. If we take a man as he is, point A, and we, make, we will make him worse, point C. But if we take a man as he should be, point X, we make him capable of becoming what he could be, point B. Because of the crosswinds of life, because life is often difficult and messy and complex and sad and hard, if we're aiming at only what we think we could be, we might not get there. We must aim at what we should be to get to who we could be. Now, real quickly, I'm not talking about the shame and judgment kind of should, just the opposite, actually. I've said this before, this is a community where we will not should on ourselves, okay? I won't should on you, you don't should on me, all right? The first time I used that phrase, I had to make sure that we put the word up on the screen. <laughs> I can't believe you said that, Mike. I promise, I won't shit on you. Anyway, I won't shit on you, you won't shit on me. This, this should is taking the reality of life, like the real life that we actually live, into account, that there are crosswinds in life. The real realist knows this and understands that to get to where we are going, to become our true selves, who we really are, we must crab walk our way through life. We must dare to aim for our best and then move toward that goal. Welcome to the planet Welcome to exist 
hoping to be asked to be in the band for that song but it's not gonna happen so one of the many things that I just I love about Jesus is he is a real realist like he desperately wants us to flourish to really live to become ourselves who we could be and he knows that for that to happen we must enjoy God we have to decide and do something we have to aim at something bigger better and beyond ourselves 
and even what we can imagine ourselves to be. This is why over and over and over again, as a way to help his followers like braid his way of life into theirs, to let grace happen, Jesus gave them a mission. In just a couple of examples, he sent out 72 of his followers to preach and heal the sick long before they knew exactly who he was. He asked his disciples to feed a crowd of 5,000 people when the only food they had was a little boy's lunch. He healed a blind man and then told him to go tell people what God had done for him. He forgave a lonely woman and she ended up going and telling her entire town to come and see Jesus. He commissioned worshipers and doubters alike to share his way with the entire world. It's almost as if Jesus knows me. And the tension that I live in between who I am and who I could be, between how it is and how it should be. Like he knows the biggest crosswind in my life. And allow me to let you in on a little secret about my gathrite. I saw this in the news last week that there are now eight billion people on planet Earth. And here's a little secret about me. I spend almost all of my time, effort, energy, creativity, and resources thinking about, worrying about, praying for, providing for, protecting, entertaining, amusing, and feeding, and loving just one, me. (laughs) It's true. Could it be that this is why Jesus, who healed the sick, turned water to wine, preached in front of thousands, fed multitudes, walked on water, and raised the dead, and knows that I'm totally preoccupied with me, is daring me to move. He, He said, he actually prophesied this, whoever believes in me will do even greater things than these. Is he talking about me? Jesus, it seems, believes in crabbing, in crab walking, in aiming for something beyond ourselves. He knows that we all will struggle uh, with self-involvement and we all will fail and we will get blown off course. So a huge part of the gift that he's offering us is not just the grace for life and eternity, but the invitation to the way of grace, the grace in his way of living now. Maybe it looks like this. As we aim for him to live like him in the face of the crosswinds of life, we become ourselves, our true selves, who we were meant to be. Which is why, by the way, miraculously, according to Jesus, this isn't something less than him. It's even somehow, it's even greater than him. It's even greater than him. So what does this look like? What could it look like? And to close, I want to end with a short passage that I find really inspiring. So uh, what does it look like aiming for Jesus in an effort to decide and do, to break free from the whining and the wishing, to crab walk our way to ourselves? What does it look like? There's not any one right answer, but this is a passage I think that really inspires me. Let me set the scene uh, 
Jesus is been going all over. He's preaching and teaching and healing. And the Bible says that there are huge crowds following him from all over. And it's important to know that Jesus is Jewish. But this particular crowd that he's speaking to in the passage that we're going to look at, there were certainly plenty of Jewish people there. But it's clear that there are a lot of people there who aren't Jewish. They're from every religion, every social strata. And we have to understand that Jewish people were taught to follow God. You can't hang out with people like that. Like this, you would not want to be caught dead in the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. To follow God, you have to be and remain pure. Like associating with people like this crowd would have made you unclean, impure, disqualified for God. And yet, here's Jesus in this huge, diverse crowd. And here he is in this real place with real people who are struggling with all kinds of crosswinds in their life. And Jesus begins what is now the most famous talk in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about the good life, how to flourish, how to grow and change, and to live a life that counts and matters. And in the middle of this talk, to this diverse multitude, this hodgepodge and mishmash of all kinds of people, all kinds of classes, races, religions, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if a salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. The salt of the earth. Now, what the heck is he talking about? Well, salt in the ancient world was a very, very important thing. Highly sought after, highly prized, often very expensive, depending on where you lived. But you had to have it because salt was a purifying agent and a preservative. There was no refrigeration. So without salting meat or fish, which would have been the case in Jesus' time and place, fish, It was impossible to keep fish good. So is that what Jesus is saying? Like, stay pure? Well, remember who he's talking to. This crowd isn't pure, and they know that. They aren't pure by any religious standard. So he can't be talking about being a good and pure Jewish person, or religiously pure, or morally pure. And certainly Jesus' audience would have understood this. This is why the misfits and the outcasts, those who are left out and left over and left behind, were drawn to him. And it's why the religious leaders hated him. He seemed to be giving everyone a role. He seemed to be doing this crazy thing of telling everyone you have a critical mission, something unique and essential to offer the world, something the world desperately needs can only come into it through you. He he is not talking about salt here as a preservative or a purifying agent. He's talking about salt in a very different way. Salt as a seasoning. Salt as us purposely engaging in the lives of others to bring out the best flavors in everyone and in life. Hello. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Shared Plate. Thank you. Here, diners are seated with someone they don't know. Um, I'll show you to your table. 
Your guest is here. This is Puna. Hello. Albert. Hi. I'll leave you two to get acquainted. Hey, I'm Joshua. I'm Nicole. Nice to meet you. Hello? Hi. That's for you? Thank you. Here at Shared Plate, we don't have menus. No menus? No. So instead, we'll be mixing the culinary traditions of each table to make something brand new, just for you. Well, I'm from uh, East Tennessee. My parents are of Indian origin. Here, Queens. The UK. Well, cheers. To a new experience. Mm hmm Yeah, this is just not combining food. This is really combining people, and I'll prepare a dish that represents both of them. One was from England, the other's from New York. I came up with a banger chili dog on a pretzel roll with an everything bagel potato chip. All right, here you go. Mm. Wow. My favorite vegetable is actually okra. So oh, I love okra. Yeah, so this is perfect. My Aww. cat, Ducky. I love my mom too, but I really love my cat. <laughs> you said you're a musician? Yeah. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. Our neighbors introduced us to hot yoga. I like hot yoga, yeah. Well, you do, do you? We would always sit and have family dinner. It just made us all close. I totally, totally connect with that. Do yeah. you normally wear a bow tie to the airport? Step across, like waist. Put your hands on the floor like that. You definitely not do that. You want to try it? Um. Okay. Here, hold on. When you go to the airport, you don't think usually about company. All you're thinking about is, I'm going to make my flight on time. And we need that. There's too many things pulling people apart nowadays. Everybody has a story. When you really get to know other people, it just breaks down barriers. Oh, now we're all hungry, right? I love it. I'm so much looking forward to New Year's Eve. This year is a Sunday. And on that morning, we're going to eat together. I'm super excited about it. It's going to be great. We're going to be down in the cafeteria, and you'll hear more about it as it comes up. But something happens when we get into each other's lives like that, especially over food. You are the salt of the earth. This is almost exclusively talked about when this passage is, is talked about in religious circles as our role to like preserve things and to purify things. And I'm not saying there's nothing to that for people of faith, but the problem with that image is that it implies the exact opposite of what Jesus is actually doing when he said the thing. It implies stay pure, stay away. Stay away from the riffraff. But Jesus has knit himself into the lives of real people in real places. He's sprinkling himself into real life. I had a friend in college. His name, we'll say, was Scott. And he was a great guy. He was born and raised in a very religious home. And he was very much into this idea of purity. Like, sit up straight. Don't smoke. Don't cuss. Don't hang out with people who do. And he and I didn't see eye to eye. We were great friends. We didn't see, he, but we didn't see eye to eye on some things. And this was one of those. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not in favor of slouching or smoking or cussing. But retreating into holy huddles 
into purity pockets doesn't look to me like the way Jesus lived or what he is inviting us to aim for. When I was in grad school in Los Angeles, Scott came out to visit and he saw, uh, to visit me, and he, I introduced him to my roommates, and he figured out real quickly that one of my roommates was a little bit different. In fact, he was a homeless teenager that we had invited to, to live with us. His name was Johnny Rowland. He was in a gang, or trying to get out of one, and just was living on the street. And Johnny cussed a lot. <laughs> and uh, he had tattoos everywhere, including on his face. And he smoked constantly. He told stories that were way beyond rated R. Pure was the one thing that Johnny was not. And Scott was horrified. <laughs> like, I was sure he thought we were absolutely off the deep end. And that just was not him. He wanted to stay pure. He removed himself from things like that and people like that. Well, a few months later, he called me just to check in, and he asked me, hey, Mike, how you doing? And I whispered into the phone, I can't believe you got through. The phone lines have been down. Can, can you call my parents and tell them that I'm okay? And Scott was confused, like, why? Like, what's up with the phones? And I said, I'm not sure. Maybe they were cut. Maybe so many people are trying to call, uh, call for help. They can't get out. And help, he's like, help for what? And then he he got it. I got it. He had no idea what was happening. And so I told him, Scott, turn on your television. He dropped the phone, came back 15 seconds later, and he goes, oh my gosh, Mike, is that near you? Are you okay? Scott had called me right in the middle of the LA riots. Three days, that city burned. Breaking glass, helicopters, gunshots, smoke, fires. It was no one leaving at all, couldn't go anywhere. But he was, Scott was so removed and remote from real life, he had no idea that was going on. Jesus' invitation to be the salt of the earth is the invitation to season the world. Look, to, to preserve or purify, you have to take something out of its natural environment and put it into the salt. But to season to season a fish, you do the opposite. It's the salt that does the relocating. It's, you take the salt out of where it was and you sprinkle it on to the fish, into the world. Salt as a seasoning makes everything taste more like itself. It brings out the natural flavors that are already there. This is what Jesus is talking about here. And it's what he's inviting us into, a mission to season the world with the grace of God. And because this is all grace, this is letting God do something, not just through us, but also for us. Why are you doing this? Because I don't pay enough attention to you? No, that's not it. I just, uh, I feel like I'm living a life I just did not agree to. Aaron, it's just, I, it's, it's too hard. Your life is too hard? I think what you're doing is noble. And it's good. And I'm proud of you. I am. I just want to live my life and not feel bad about it. 
Well, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. You don't have to try. I didn't plan on becoming responsible for these kids. Well, who asked you to? No one asked me to. Not even your kids. Why do I have to be asked? Scott. I finally realize what I'm supposed to be doing, and I love it when I'm helping these kids make sense of their lives. Everything about my life makes sense to me. How often does a person get that? It's a great little scene from the movie Freedom Riders. When we crab walk our way through life by aiming for Jesus, his example and his invitation, our life starts to make sense to us. The best way to get our eyes off of the strong crosswinds are to be the salt of the earth, to season the life of others with God's grace. My friend Scott was so intent on being pure he was so removed from the real world, it was literally burning down, and he had no idea. He had lost his saltiness. Today, right now, as you are, no matter what you believe and what you don't, Jesus is inviting all of us to realize we are the salt of the earth, not just the good people, not just the religious or the pure, not just those of us who ever act together. According to Jesus, everyone is salt. Everyone is salt. We all have a unique and essential role to play in this world in seasoning it. And when we decide, and when we do aim to live this way, we become ourselves. This is how we respond to the grace of God and, and it weaves its way into us in a way that lets something bigger, better, and beyond us happen through us, in us, and for us.
could be open or you could be closed be one of us or one of those you're a thread upon the loom when the spirit walks in On the march or on the run, it doesn't matter what you've done, nor what you'll do or what you'll say. We play the role that we're made to play. We're but threads upon the any hour and when it comes it comes in power you may not walk and you may not see but you will become what you can be you're a thread upon the Thank you, Al. Wow. So how do we resolve to respond to God's grace and sustain this surrender to faith? That's a question we all have to struggle with in our own way. There is no one way that it looks other than somehow, some way to do that together. There are many threads to pull, to weave, to try, but it has something to do with enjoying God, deciding and doing, living as if we have two legs, not four, participating in an, an infinity project that's bigger and beyond ourselves, aiming for Jesus and seasoning the life of others with the grace of God. By doing so, 
we are letting something happen. We are letting God weave his grace into our life. Amen for that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place. We thank you for this opportunity to be together and we thank you for your grace that you have come to us like a sunrise each and every day on everyone, everywhere, in every way, every day. I pray that you would show us the ways, the places in our life where we can get up early, face east, and let you love us like that. Enjoy it, soak it in, and carry your radiance into our real life and into our real relationships in the real world. Thank you so much for loving us like that. I pray that as we leave, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.